this series called Unwavering. We got out of it for a few weeks. We're getting back into it. We've only got a few more weeks left. We're going to be in Acts chapter 25 today, and next week we're going to cover all of 25 and all of 26 in one week. We're really just going to focus on, on a few verses, uh, but we're going, to, we're going to get through this and get to Acts 28, and um, I just love this series. We're learning about what it means to live an unwavering life of faith in Jesus. What does it mean to be unwavering as we walk with Jesus, as we stay dedicated uh, to him, as we uh, stay committed to take the good news here, there, and everywhere? And so we're uh, in this section of Scripture, the last few chapters of Acts, and uh, really this section uh, that we're studying, um, it, it focuses on, mainly on a guy named Paul. And if you've been with us, uh, you know who Paul is, that he's an apostle, he's a, uh, a messenger, a missionary of the gospel. If you don't know who Paul is, and maybe if you're new here or new to this series or new to, to faith or whatever, uh, Paul uh, is a guy who started off trying to stomp out Christianity, trying to put an end to it. And then one day he met Jesus, and Jesus changed everything in his life. He called him to be a follower, and not just to be a follower, but to be uh, a servant, to be a messenger who would take the good news uh, far and wide to, uh, to Jews and to Gentiles, uh, to take the gospel where uh, it, it had never been uh, proclaimed before. And, you know, as we've seen since probably around Acts chapter 13 or so, um, you know, you know, this was not an easy task. Paul and the other guys that went with him uh, faced a lot of opposition, a lot of persecution. And, and it wasn't just like a one-time thing. It wasn't just like a one-time hassle, a one-time pushback, a one-time struggle. This was something that had been going on for like 20 years. Paul's been on mission for about 20 years, and, uh, and he's facing struggles and hardships and difficulties all along the way. I want you just to picture that for a minute. Imagine going through something like that in your life. Imagine uh, dealing with, uh, with an issue for 20 years, dealing with a health issue for 20 years, dealing with a difficult uh, marriage for 20 years, dealing with a, a broken relationship with somebody in your family or maybe even somebody in your church family for 20 years, maybe dealing with, with struggles with your finances for, for, for 20 years. Maybe, maybe you're there, you know? Maybe you don't have to imagine it. Maybe you're walking through it and you've been walking through it. Maybe you know somebody who's in that situation. Well, when we find ourselves in those times of struggle, in those seasons of struggle, even in just those moments, we have a choice to make. On the one hand, we can say, you know what? I got this. I can handle this. You know, I know what to do. And, and we, we take things into our own hands, and a lot of times we make a mess out of them, sometimes even make them worse. Or on the other hand, we have the choice of trusting God. We have the choice of turning to Him in the midst of our problems, in the midst of our struggles, in the midst of our hurt, and saying, God, I don't know the way out, but I know you, and I'm going to trust you in the middle of this. Well, that's what we're going to look at today as we look at Acts chapter 25, verses 1 through 12. And we're going to see that after a couple of years of being in prison and after waiting a trial, that these Jewish religious leaders still haven't get up, given up on their attempts to kill Paul. And despite all this, Paul is not discouraged. Despite all of this, he still has a confidence 
in the Lord that allows him to continue to be unwavering. And guys, that's my hope for us today. That's my hope is that we will see that we can live an unwavering life when we trust God. Let's read Acts chapter 25 beginning in verse 1. It says, three days later, Festus arrived at Caesarea to take over his new responsibilities. And he left for Jerusalem where leading priests and other Jewish leaders met with him and made their accusations against Paul. They asked Festus as a favor to transfer Paul to Jerusalem, planning to ambush and kill him on the way. But Festus replied that Paul was at Caesarea and he himself would be returning there soon. So he said, those of you in authority can return with me. If Paul's done anything wrong, you can make your accusations. About eight or ten days later, Festus returned to Caesarea. And on the following day, he took his uh, seat in court and ordered that Paul be brought in. And when Paul arrived, the Jewish leaders from Jerusalem gathered around and made many serious accusations that they couldn't prove. Paul denied the charges. I'm not guilty of any crime against the Jewish laws or the temple or the Roman government, he said. Then Festus, wanting to please the Jews, asked him, are you willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial uh, before me there? But Paul replied, no, this is the official Roman court, so I ought to be tried there. You know very well I am not guilty of harming the Jews. If I've done something worthy of death, I don't refuse to die. But if I'm innocent, no one has a right to turn me over to these men to kill me. I appeal to Caesar. Festus, Festus conferred with his advisors and then replied, Very well, you have appealed to Caesar, and to Caesar you will go. All right, so there's a lot going on in this uh, chapter. It builds off of uh, the chapter before uh, and even a couple of chapters before where uh, we learned that Paul's a Roman citizen and he has a right uh, to be uh, treated uh, fairly. Um, but one of the things that, uh, that, that I want us to see in this passage is one of the things that can keep us from living a life of peace and living a life of confidence and just enjoying the amazing life uh, with God is when we take things into our own hands rather than give them over to God. And the first lesson I think we can learn from this passage is point number one. Uh, and we've only got two points today. Don't get excited. We're still going to be here the same amount of time, okay? But point number one is this. Uh, the lesson that we get out of this uh, first part is to relentlessly hold on to God and release everything else. First thing I want us to see that we need to do if we're going to live an unwavering life is to relentlessly hold on to God and just to release everything else, let go of everything else that we're holding on to. I think this is an attitude that will help us develop that unwavering life uh, of faith in God, that unwavering life of, uh, of devotion and dedication, uh, even of, of dependence, uh, is to be relentless in holding on to God. Now, to illustrate the point uh, by, by way of contrast, what we see in this story is an example of what not to do. What we see in this story uh, among the Jewish religious leaders and the chief priests uh, is that they're not holding on to God, but instead they're holding on to something else. Listen again to Acts 25, verse 3. It's talking about the Jewish religious leaders and the chief priests. Says, they asked Festus as a favor uh, to transfer Paul to Jerusalem, planning to ambush and kill him on the way. So Festus uh, is the new governor over this region. Uh, his, uh, the, the main place of uh, the seat of power is there in Caesarea. Uh, he goes up to Jerusalem. He meets with the Jewish relig religious leaders there, the chief priests, ask him a favor. Uh, they're like, hey, you know, you know, you know, you're new here and you probably want to get in good with us. So, 
you know, why don't you, why don't you uh, let us deal with this situation with Paul that's been hanging around for every, you know, all this time? And secretly they're planning to ambush him and, and kill him along the way. I want you to notice something. It's been two years. It's been two years that, that they've been planning and plotting and scheming and trying to get at Paul. They've been holding on to their grudge, holding on to their lies, holding on to their hatred, and for two years, they're still making murderous plans. How many of y'all get mad about something from time to time? How many of y'all, maybe a little bit later in the day, you're still a little bit grumpy about it? How about the next morning? You, usually by the next morning, you're like, all right, I probably need to let that go, right? Can you just imagine if you've been holding on to something for two years you know, I can't believe that person did such and such to me. I can't believe they said that about me. I can't believe they treated me that way or you know, whatever it is. That's what's going on here. You know, how do these guys go? These, these are the religious leaders, mind you. These are the, 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 the chief priests, the ones who had the Old Testament. We didn't have the New Testament yet. It's being written, okay? But they had the Old Testament, all, all of the Old Testament. They had it. And how do you go two years without hearing from God, without hearing God talk about grace or forgiveness or love or mercy. You know, I mean, this grace and mercy stuff, it's very New Testament-y, isn't it, right? We think of the Old Testament, we think of judgment, you know, God will smite them, you know, smite them, Lord, who deserve to be smitten, right? No, you know, New Testament, forgiveness, grace, you know, Old Testament, ah, New Testament, ah, right? No, the Old Testament has got grace and mercy and love in it too. Look at Micah 6, 8. It says, He has shown you, O mortal, O man, O, o person, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? How many of y'all would just love to know what God expects from you? It's right here. To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. This is an Old Testament passage. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years old. What does it mean to act justly? It means you just do what's right. You do what's right between you and God. You obey his commands. You do what's right between you and others. You treat them the way they deserve to be treated. You treat them kindly, fairly, justly. Act justly. The second thing is, it says to love mercy. Well, mercy goes beyond Justice. To love mercy means that you rejoice when people don't get the punishment they deserve. You rejoice when God, when God treats them better than they deserve, when he shows them mercy. And maybe even you're a part of showing mercy yourself. Maybe even you're a part of showing the love and the kindness and the grace that God wants them to experience. You strive to show people the love that God has shown you. Act justly. Love mercy. And then number Three, the third one it says is to walk humbly. Walk humbly with your God. That basically means God's God and you're not. God's in charge and you're not. God's going to handle things on his time frame, not yours. And God may choose to punish someone and deal with them. And he may choose to show them grace and mercy and forgiveness. And whatever he decides to do, he is wiser than you are. He is kinder than you are than I am. He knows more, he knows best, and he's going to do what's best. And we're going to say, God, you're God, you're in charge. I'm going to leave this in your hands. The Bible says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. But God, if you need some help, I'm here. 
act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with God. Like I said, this is Old Testament stuff, and this is something the chief priests and religious leaders should have known. This is something they should have lived by. They should have been holding on to God. If they would have been holding on to God, they would have let go of their grudge. If they would have been holding on to God, they would have let go of their hatred. If they would have been holding on to God, they would have let go of all the things the world says to hold on to, power and prestige and tradition, and this is the way we think it ought to be done, and this is the way it's always been done, and this is the way I want it done. Instead, they would have been holding on to, God, what do you want? Guys, if we're going to be unwavering in our faith, unfailing in our walk with God, unyielding in our devotion to him and in our dedication to take the gospel here, there, and everywhere, then we have to relentlessly hold on to God. That word relentless means without change, without deviation, not getting distracted. It says, God, I want you and nothing else. And I think when it comes to holding on to God, we're pretty good at doing that sometimes. We're pretty good at doing that for a little bit. We're pretty good at doing that in the, in the desperate moments. But to, to relentlessly hold on to God means, God, I hold on to you at all times. What are you holding on to? You're holding on to your job. You're holding on to yourself. You're holding on to a relationship. You're holding on to something you hope comes around. Or you're holding on to God. That's the response we see in Paul. What, we, what, we, what Paul does is what I hope we also will do. Point number two is very simply this. Find peace in holding on to God's promises. Find peace by holding on to God's promises. Paul's on trial once again. He's being accused of stuff that he didn't do and, and, and lies and accusations that, that, that have been refuted two years ago are being brought back up. I mean, the people who came and, and, and made accusations two years ago didn't even bring the guys who had raised the original accusations because there was nothing to them. And Paul just responds very peacefully and, and in a confident way because Paul had found peace by holding on to God's promises despite whatever problems he was facing. And Paul was facing some real problems here. He was facing some real challenges, some real struggles. You know, he's, like I said, he's been in prison for two years uh, because the previous governor, a guy named Felix, wouldn't make a decision about what to do with him. You know, he didn't want to let him go and anger the Jews, but he also couldn't tell him he was guilty because he hadn't done anything. The people who wanted him dead are still coming after him. This new governor, Felix, doesn't want to tick off you know, this, this big group of, uh, of his constituents, this big group of people that he governs. And on top of this, Paul wasn't guilty of anything. You know, it wasn't like, I, I, you know, he, he, wasn't, he, he hadn't done anything. The Jews couldn't prove any of the stuff they made up about him because they made it up. And, and Paul's defense in this chapter because of that is very simple. Read again, Acts 25, verse 8. Paul denied the charges and said, I'm not guilty of any crime against the Jewish laws or the temple or the Roman government. Now, that's a very simple defense. I don't know if you watch, you know, many lawyer-type shows, but usually they, they do a lot more than just say, 
He didn't do it. I rest my case, you know. <laughs> but what Paul says here, he, he makes three key statements. You know, he didn't do anything against the Jewish laws, the Jewish customs, the Jewish customs, the Old Testament. He didn't do anything uh, wrong against the temple, you know, a sacred place. And this really tied in with Festus. He goes, I didn't do anything wrong against the Roman government. Any three of those things he probably could have gotten nailed on, but he, but he didn't. And a lot of commentaries point out that Paul's simple defense here, even though he doesn't say a lot, his simple defense says a lot. He didn't have to say a lot because he knew he was on the side of truth. He didn't have to say a lot because he knew their accusations were false. But more importantly, what a lot of commentaries point out, more important than Paul's legal standing and and his knowledge of his own legal standing was Paul's confidence in God's promises. Paul didn't have to take matters into his own hands because he already knew that God had everything under control. It's been a month or so, maybe longer, but recall what we saw in Acts Chapter 23, verse 11, I don't think we have it up on the screen or in your notes, but you can flip there and look at it, where Jesus tells Paul to to be encouraged. He tells them, be encouraged because you will take the gospel. Just as you've taken it to Jerusalem, just as you've preached and proclaimed the good news here in Jerusalem, you will take the gospel. You will proclaim the good news in Rome. You will proclaim the good news in Rome, the place that Paul had always wanted to go to, the place that Paul had longed to go to. Jesus promises him, you're not going to get stuck. You're not going to get killed. Their their plans aren't going to have any impact whatsoever. I got a plan for you, and it ain't here. It's in Rome. And Paul had a peace about that. On the one hand, he's facing all of these problems. They look insurmountable. They look like they're never going to change. They look like these people are just going to keep coming after him. And on the other hand, he had the promise from God. On the one hand, is his problems. On the other hand, is God's promises. On the one hand, is his problems. Wait a minute. If it's a scale, it's got to be more weighty this way. Sorry. On the one hand, is his problems. <laughs> and on the other hand, is God's promises. You get in the picture? Like I'm a scale? Okay. I didn't set that up properly. Just try to, Richard's like, no, brother, you botched it. But yeah, <laughs> on the one hand, it's his problems. On the other hand, it's God's promises. Does that communicate it better? God's promises way outweigh Paul's problems. And the same thing is true for you. You've got problems. i got problems. we got things we deal with. we got hurts and heartaches and struggles and difficulties and headaches and heartaches and everything else in the world. But on the other hand, we have God's promises. So let me ask you, are you holding on to God's promises? A good place to find them is in the Psalms. And I would encourage you when you pray, to not just pray, okay, God, Here's all the things I need you to do today. But instead, I encourage you to get your Bible out. Maybe even open up to to the book of Psalms and work your way through those, praying those Psalms. Praising God, confessing your need for Him, maybe even confessing sin if, if that's appropriate at that time. Yes, making your requests and also saying, God, I'm I'm ready for whatever you have for me. But there's so many promises and and one of them is found in Psalm 69. 
read this just the other day. You know, Psalm 69, it starts off rough. It starts off rough. It starts off with David just saying, man, I'm sinking deep. I'm feeling overwhelmed and feeling like he doesn't even have a way out. Let's, let's look at this together. Psalm 69, verses 1 through 3. David says, save me, O God, for the floodwaters are up to my neck. Deeper and deeper I sink into the mire. Some translations say mud. I can't find a foothold. I'm in deep water and the floods overwhelm me. I'm exhausted from crying out for help. My throat is parched. My eyes are swollen with weeping, waiting for my God to help me. Can you relate? Psalm 69 starts off rough, but, uh, but it ends very differently. Let's look at verses 32 to 34. Still David. He says, the humble will see their God at work and be glad. Let all who seek God's help be encouraged. For the Lord hears the cries of the needy. He does not despise his imprisoned people. Praise him, O heaven and earth. Psalm 69 ends with David praising God for what he's going to do. Praising God for how he is going to act. He's not out of the struggle. He's still in the middle of it. He's still neck deep with the waters coming over. But in the midst of that, he is praising God for what he's going to do, believing God for his promises. Guys, you're going to find yourself, if you're not in a difficult situation right now, you're going to find yourself in, in a place where you feel like you're in a hole and you feel like you don't know the way out. The thing that's going to get you through isn't you. The thing that's going to get you through, what I've learned and what so many others have learned, is when we turn to God and we trust him. I don't know what you're going through, but God does. I don't know the way out, but God does. Actually, I do know, I, I know the way through, and that's to walk hand in hand with the Lord and to trust him. So let me ask you, what's your plan for dealing with whatever you're dealing with? On the one hand, you can choose to handle it. On the other, you can trust God. Let me encourage you today to find peace in whatever you're dealing with by trusting God and trusting his promises. Let me also encourage you to begin right now to praise him in the midst of your struggle. Not when you get through it, but to praise him right now because of what he's going to do. As our musicians come and we move into a time of response, maybe that's what you need to do today right now. Maybe you just need to take some time today to talk to God and say, God, here's what I'm dealing with. Here's what I'm struggling with. And I need you. But also, God, I'm going to praise you in the midst of it. 
Maybe today you, you realize, you know what, I don't know if I can do that because I don't have a relationship with God. I've never placed my faith in him to save me. I've never placed my faith in Jesus to save me. You, you know about God, but you don't know God. You can today. You can trust him, not just for your problems. You can trust him with your life, this life and your eternal life. Will you join with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, all across the room, as we get ready to worship you, as we get ready to sing, turn your eyes upon Jesus, I pray that in the midst of our struggle, in the midst of our problem, that we would do that, that we would call out to you and say, God, here's what I'm dealing with, and I am turning it over to you. I am wearied and troubled, but I'm turning my eyes upon Jesus. God, I also recognize, we also recognize that there may be people in this room that need to place their faith in Jesus for the very first time today. Would you call them to salvation? Would you call them to call out to you and just say a very simple prayer? Something along the lines, if, if this is you, by the way, you can pray this prayer. If you're ready to place your faith in Jesus, you can pray a prayer like this. You can say, God, I know that you love me. Maybe you're ready to do that right now. Just pray along with me. If you're a believer, pray for those around you. If you're ready to place your faith in Jesus, just pray this prayer along with me. God, I know that you love me. I'm sorry for handling life myself. I'm sorry for rejecting you, for spurning your love, and for living apart from you as a sinner. Please forgive me of my sins. I believe in Jesus. I believe he died on the cross for my sins. I believe you raised him back to life. And I believe what your word says, that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So right now, in faith, I call upon Jesus to save me, to forgive me of my sins, to give me new life, and I hold on to the hope of eternal life with you forever. In Christ's name, we pray these things. Everybody said, Amen. Amen. Hey, listen.